This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name where every revelation brings us closer to the truth. On a stormy night in the summer of 1978, Elmer and Jean Kellen, both in their early 50s, drove warily down a German highway. Peering out into the torrential rain, they grew increasingly uncertain about which way to go. Suddenly, a figure appeared, silhouetted in the headlights, It was a slim, long-haired teenage boy hitchhiking down the road. Hoping the young man might be able to help them find a hotel, the Kellens stopped their car. When the boy climbed into the vehicle, he was soaking wet but surprisingly chipper. With a cheerful greeting, he introduced himself in near-perfect English as Christian Karl Gerhardsreiter. This was just one of countless names he would use over the next 30 years. Christian told Elmer and Jean that he was a guide for English-speaking tourists in the Munich area. The couple was immediately overwhelmed with relief. They asked Christian if he could recommend a place for them to spend the night. Christian had the perfect solution. His house was just around the corner. Christian took them to a nearby hamlet called Bergen, where his family lived in a quaint two-story home. He introduced Elmer and Jean to his parents, then immediately took them to dinner. All through the evening, he chatted excitedly about his plans to move to America someday to become a filmmaker. To the Kellins, he seemed like a smart kid with big dreams. The next morning, As Elmer and Jean said their farewells, they told Christian that if he was ever in America, he should look them up. Then they thanked him and his parents for their hospitality and drove off to finish their vacation. Two months later, Christian sat in his bedroom in Bergen, filling out an application for an American tourist visa. In the section of the form that asked who would be sponsoring him, and therefore taking responsibility for him, He wrote, Elmer and Jean Kellen.
Welcome to Con Artists, a podcast original. I'm Alastair Murden. Every week, we peel back the layers of history's greatest deceptions and tell the stories of the hustlers, swindlers, and fraudsters that orchestrated them. I'll dive into their psychology, break down their tricks, and explain why anyone might fall for a con. You can find episodes of Con Artists and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Con Artists for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Con Artists in the search bar. At Parcast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help us. This week, we're delving into the life of Christian Gerhardsreiter, a German con artist from humble roots whose Hollywood dreams took him to America. Today, in part one, we'll follow Christian as he cons his way out of Germany and across the United States a scam he accomplishes by assuming a number of identities, including as an exchange student and the long-lost relative of European nobility. Next week, in part two, we'll track Christian as he takes on a new moniker that rockets him to the top of high society. We'll examine the tactics he used to keep up the masquerade for 16 years and detail his eventual downfall. Christian Gerhardsreiter was a brilliant imposter, active from the late 1970s until 2008. For 30 years, he manipulated scores of vulnerable people out of their cash, homes, and even love by claiming to be related to influential families. In the 1990s, Christian reached the height of his career, posing as a member of the aristocratic Rockefeller family. From that point on, however, keeping up the con required an ever greater amount of deception, evasion, and control. And Christian would go to horrifying lengths to ensure he was never unmasked. The man best known as Clark Rockefeller was born Christian Karl Gerhardsreiter on February 21, 1961, in Bergen, Germany. The Gerhardsreiter family led a simple life. Christian's father, Simon, was a house painter, and his mother, Irmengard, was a seamstress. An only child, Christian spent his days playing with other children in his village and watching television in the family's quaint, two-story home. Christian's hometown of Bergen was located in West Germany, where the U.S. exerted considerable influence following World War II. Due to extensive trade between the two countries, it was common to find American products on the shelves of West German stores and Hollywood films in its theaters. Christian loved American culture. Even as a child, he was a passionate fan of Hollywood movies and often told friends and acquaintances that one day he would move to the U.S. to become a filmmaker. For a boy from Christian's background, these were lofty ambitions. Not only was his family lower middle class, but they had lived in the same small town for generations. 
While Christian's parents seemed content to lead a modest life, their son wanted more. In her book, The Confidence Game, psychologist Maria Konnikova theorized that con artists may be born with certain innate tendencies. Principal among these is Machiavellianism, the inclination to manipulate and exploit others to achieve one's personal goals. This predisposition toward Machiavellianism may have developed in Christian's childhood, leading him to run cons at an early age, a possibility demonstrated by stories from his youth. Young Christian reveled in mischief. Once, he called his local vehicle registration office and claimed to be a Dutch millionaire who wanted to register two Rolls Royces. It's not clear what he intended to accomplish from this scam other than amusing his friends. But even today, over 40 years later, Bergen locals still laugh about the incident. Some of Christian's pranks, however, weren't so amusing. According to a former classmate, Christian once approached a teacher with his hand in an upturned fist as if he were holding something small and delicate. He then asked the teacher to look at it. When she leaned toward him, he opened his palm, revealing a handful of pepper. Christian then blew the pepper into her face, temporarily blinding her. <laughs> the pepper incident clearly shows that Christian's ruses weren't always innocent. He could be malicious, cruel even. Such a detachment from the pain of others requires a certain distance from reality. And starting from a young age, Christian chose to always keep one foot in the realm of fantasy. In 1973, when he was 12 years old, Christian's life changed dramatically. His parents had another son. After over a decade of being an only child, Christian must have felt as if his universe was being turned upside down. He had occupied a prized place in his parents' life as their one and only. They doted on him and allowed him to do things other children his age couldn't, such as watch whatever he wanted on TV. However, with Christian's parents preoccupied with the arrival of his little brother, his freedoms only grew more expansive. So Christian simply retreated further into his own reality. Elmer and Jean Kellen, the American tourist Christian hosted years later, remembered that Christian had taken over the entire family living room. It was full of his personal furniture, a workstation, a film projector, all kinds of equipment. Jean recalled afterward, I felt he was living in a fantasy world of which his parents were not a part. Jean's memory of Christian taking over the biggest room in the house with no apparent concern for how this would affect his family points to an extreme sense of entitlement. When considering his grandiosity and fantasies of success, this detail suggests that Christian had traits similar to people with narcissistic personality disorder. According to the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, published by the American Psychiatric Association, narcissistic personality disorder is characterized by arrogant behavior, a lack of empathy, and a need for excessive admiration. 
We've seen evidence of Christian's lack of empathy in the story about the time he blew pepper in a teacher's face. But his need for admiration is embodied in an entirely different way, in his sense of style. Christian was obsessed with fashion and used his clothing to distinguish himself from others in his small town, wearing showy clothing like white sunglasses and fashionable jeans. When the Kellens found Christian hitchhiking, he was wearing sunglasses at night during a thunderstorm. This preoccupation with image, which reflected a belief that he was meant for something greater, left Christian dissatisfied with Bergen, a small, relatively homogenous town where nothing particularly remarkable tends to happen. So as Christian reached his teen years, he began to take day trips, hitchhiking and embarking on journeys by train to neighboring towns. Perhaps at first, his primary motivation was just to get out of Bergen. But at some point during his travels, Christian seemed to realize that the road was the perfect place to practice a con. As we've discussed in previous episodes, Dr. Konnikova breaks down a successful con in a series of steps. The first of which is identifying the victim. Who is he? What does he want? And how can I play on that desire to achieve what I want? When Christian met up with the Kellens on that stormy night in 1978, he probably pegged them immediately as foreigners by their accent. He might have then guessed by the fact that they were on a remote road that the couple was lost. What could they possibly need more than a tour guide? The second step in a con, according to Konakova, is the creation of empathy. The con artist must convince the Mark to trust him. Christian did this by charming the Kellens with his stories, inviting them to his home and taking them out to dinner. This demonstrates that even as a teenager, Christian excelled at seeing what people wanted and making himself just the person to give it to them. In another version of this story, the Kellens might have woken up to find the house empty and their wallets and jewelry gone. But money doesn't seem to have been Christian's motive. Instead, he wanted a hand in getting to America. So as his guests were saying their farewells and told Christian to keep in touch, he asked for their home address. After enjoying his hospitality, Jean and Elmer could hardly refuse. And that was exactly what Christian was counting on. After succeeding with the Kellens, Christian used this same tour guide trick at least one more time. That same summer, while spending the day on a train somewhere near Munich, the budding con artist met an American teen named Peter Roccapriori. Peter had just graduated high school and was celebrating by backpacking all over Europe. He was delighted when Christian offered to show him around town. At the end of their day together, Peter thanked Christian for his hospitality and, just like the Kellens, gave the young German his address. Peter told him that if he should ever find himself in his hometown of Meriden, Connecticut, Christian should look him up. And a few weeks later, Christian arranged to do exactly that. 
In August of 1978, 17-year-old Christian took the first step toward living his American dream by applying for a tourist visa. He named the Kellens as his financial sponsors. Then, when the form asked where he'd be staying, Christian jotted down Peter's address in Connecticut. With his paperwork in progress, Christian constructed an elaborate lie to secure his departure from Germany. He told his parents he'd gotten a radio DJ job in New York City and asked them to help him buy plane fare to get there. Simon and Irmengard, ever the supportive parents, not only bought Christian a ticket, they also promised to send him $250 a month, almost $1,000 today, until he got settled. Given that the average wage in West Germany at the time was about $8 an hour, this was practically all the money they had. And Christian clearly felt no compunction for taking it. On October 16, 1978, he took a Lufthansa flight and landed in Boston, Massachusetts. One of the first things Christian did after arriving was call his mother, but not to tell her that he was all right. Instead, he lied once more, telling her his luggage had been stolen. He then asked her to wire him more money. With a tourist visa in his hand and his parents' cash in his pocket, Christian set his sights on American high society and started climbing. His first stop? The house of Peter Rocca Priori. Coming up, Christian Gerhardt's writer crafts a series of outlandish identities to gain access to the upper echelons of American society. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now back to the story. On October 16th, 1978, after telling his parents he'd gotten a job as a radio DJ in New York City, 17-year-old Christian Gerhardtswriter flew from Germany to Boston in search of his own American dream. Back in his hometown of Bergen, he had already been experimenting with cons. Through his interactions with the Kellens and Peter Rocapriori, Christian learned that people tend to be naturally trusting. But more importantly, he found that if he said what they wanted to hear, almost anyone could be charmed. So a day after his arrival in America, Christian put that knowledge to work. After landing in Boston, Christian hopped a bus to Connecticut. Then he called the phone number Peter Rocapriori had given him back in Germany. Peter wasn't home, but his mother answered. Christian told Peter's mum that he'd hosted her son in Europe and that Peter had offered to let him stay with them in America. Surprised, but not wanting to put the poor teenager out on the street, she agreed to have Christian at the house. He even convinced her to come pick him up from the bus station. 
It doesn't seem to have struck Peter's mother as suspicious that a boy her son had met only once in Europe showed up out of the blue in their small town of Meriden, Connecticut. She simply assumed, like everyone else Christian met, that the young man was telling the truth. Christian seemed to be aware that his youth granted him a sort of assumed innocence. So he capitalized on this, making himself into exactly the kind of person a community of older Americans would love to help. Within a few days of arriving in Meriden, he placed an ad in the newspaper of a nearby town called Berlin, a wealthy enclave of mostly retirees. The ad read, Exchange student seeking room and board. Soon, Christian got a call from Gwen Savio, a high school librarian in Berlin whose family had hosted foreign students before. Gwen invited Christian to come over and meet her husband and four children. Christian was so eager to get to the Savio's house that he walked five miles from Meriden to Berlin, hauling his luggage the entire way. It's not clear why his departure was so sudden, as his parting with the Rocket Prioris seems to have been amicable. But Edward Savio, the oldest son in the family, recounted a memory that might contain a clue. Edward recalled that when Christian arrived at their home, he looked completely worn out from his long trek. This may have been intentional, a way for the young German to appear helpless and to ultimately gain the Savio's sympathy. Neuroeconomist Paul J. Zak states that humans have a natural, hormone-driven impulse to assist one another, a tendency which con artists often exploit. He writes, Con men ply their trade by appearing fragile or seeming vulnerable. Because of the hormone oxytocin and its effect on other parts of the brain, we feel good when we help others. This is the basis for attachment to family and friends and cooperation with strangers. In other words, by presenting himself in a prone position, Christian triggered a natural bonding instinct in the sympathetic family. And it had just the effect he intended. The unsuspecting Savios invited him to move in immediately. Because they didn't have a spare bedroom, Gwen let Christian take over the living room, just like he had in his parents' home back in Bergen. And as he did back home, Christian began spending most of his free time watching television, particularly Gilligan's Island, a popular sitcom that featured a fictional millionaire named Thurston Howell III. Edward Savio said that Christian was fascinated by this character and began to imitate him in speech and manner. He adopted Thurston's blue-blooded Bostonian accent and started putting on airs. He refused to help the Savios around the house and often explained his behavior by saying he was used to being waited on by servants back in Germany. Although Christian's hosts may not have questioned his outlandish claims at first, they soon tired of his grandiose behavior. And just a couple of months after his arrival, Christian pushed the Savios too far. Sometime during the winter of 1979, Christian was cozied up in the living room, watching TV as usual, 
while the Savio's eight-year-old daughter stood shivering outside in the freezing cold. Somehow, she had been locked out of the house and was now knocking desperately at the door, waiting to be let in. But Christian, perhaps too engrossed in his program to be bothered, ignored her. Hours later, when Gwen came home to find her little girl half-frozen on the doorstep, she ordered Christian out of their home immediately. Now evicted from the Savio's house, 17-year-old Christian was left to depend once again on the kindness of American strangers. Fortunately for him, the town of Berlin, Connecticut, had hospitality to spare. He quickly found a new mark, a librarian he met at the local high school named Mia McMahon. Christian tried a new backstory on Mia, telling her he had fled Germany to escape being drafted. This was in 1979, just a few short years after American families were ravaged by their country's own military conscription in the Vietnam War. Apparently, Christian thought Mia would sympathize with him, and he was right. Concerned for his welfare, the librarian took him in. As he had with the Savios, Christian took all that Mia offered and immediately decided he was entitled to more. He began making long-distance calls to South Africa without explaining why. And when Mia asked Christian to pay the exorbitant phone bill, he refused. As a result, she too evicted the young con artist from her house after a few short months. But Christian was unconcerned. He had gotten what he needed from Mia. Her home was just a stopover from which he planned his next step. American College. Christian had applied and been accepted to the University of Wisconsin, Stevens Point, an offshoot campus that was easier to get into than a mainstream university. And so, in the summer of 1979, he was off again, ready to start over with an entirely new identity. In August of 1979, 18-year-old Christian Gerhardtswriter moved into his dorm in Stevens Point, Wisconsin, looking very much like his favorite Gilligan's Island character, Thurston Howell III, and carrying a brand new set of golf clubs. According to his roommate at the time, Chris Newberg, Christian said he was from Boston and claimed to be the son of an ambassador. He had an unusual accent, a mixture of British and highbrow Bostonian. Newberg suggested that Christian was worried his faint British tone would make people question his backstory. So he doubled down. In order to reinforce his Bostonian image, he began drinking Irish coffee and eating Boston cream pie every single day. Ultimately, Christian's time at Stevens Point was brief. Just like at the Rocca Priori's house in Meriden, Connecticut, he seems to have used it merely as a testing ground for his new identity before moving on to greener pastures. This time, Christian transferred to the larger and more prestigious University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. Once in Milwaukee, Christian began networking, a course of action that he would employ each time he came to a new place. He sought out membership in various social organizations, 
rotary clubs, civic groups, any place he was likely to find well-to-do members of the community and start rubbing elbows. Above all, Christian's targets included churches. Having been raised Catholic in a country with a sizable Catholic population, Christian probably saw the church as a center of power, a meeting place for well-connected people, the kind who could give him a leg up and offer favors. In Milwaukee, Christian had a very specific goal in mind, permanent residency in the U.S. He wanted a green card, which meant he needed to get cozy with a citizen. And where better than a church to find his potential bride? In the fall of 1980, Christian met 22-year-old Elaine Gersild at his parish. As he had told others, Christian said he had run away from Germany to avoid the draft. But this time, instead of begging for lodging, he asked his sympathetic listener to marry him. Elaine resisted Christian's charms, to some extent at least. She refused to marry him herself. However, she did offer to introduce Christian to her older sister, Amy. Amy, she told him, might be more agreeable to his proposal. Elaine was right. This time, no con was required. All Christian had to do was tell Amy that he needed to get married to stay in the US. And surprisingly, Amy agreed to go along with it. On February 20th, 1981, the day before Christian's 20th birthday, he married Amy Gersild in the county courthouse. Christian and Amy didn't bother with the reception or with any pretense of being a couple. Instead, they went their separate ways after the ceremony. The two college students met only one other time on April 7, 1981, when Christian needed Amy's signature for his immigration documents. With his papers signed, he walked out. Neither Amy nor anyone else in Milwaukee ever heard from Christian Gerhardt's writer again. Instead, in the spring of 1981, at age 20, Christian hit the road, bound for Los Angeles, where he would pay a visit to some old friends, Elmer and Jean Kellen. Coming up, Christian's California cons go south, leading him to take on an identity he probably never expected. One of a murderer. Now back to the story. In 1978, after flying to America and taking advantage of the kindness of many strangers, Christian Gerhardt's writer met the woman of his dreams, a US citizen who agreed to marry him to help get his green card, no questions asked. Once the paperwork was filed, Christian said goodbye to his first wife forever and made his way toward Hollywood. But Christian didn't head straight for Los Angeles. Instead, on May 26, 1981, he stopped in the town of Loma Linda, a middle-class suburb of about 10,000 residents east of LA, and the home of Jean and Elmer Kellen. It had been three years since the Kellens picked up a certain teenage hitchhiker on a stormy night in Bavaria. And when they looked out their window to see that same boy standing on their doorstep, they barely recognized him. 
gone were the sunglasses and long hair, this young man was clean-cut, businesslike, and ready to move up in the world. Once they realized who he was, Jean and Elmer readily welcomed Christian into their home. During his short stay at the Kellins, he quickly charmed them, just like he had in Germany. Christian chatted happily about how he'd finally made it to California to pursue his filmmaking dream, but voiced the concern that he'd never be successful with a name like Christian Gerhardsreiter. He needed a new identity, one that would invite success. The Kellens agreed. The boy was headed to Hollywood after all. There, changing one's name was practically a requirement for entry. They provided feedback as Christian tried out various options. Finally landing on the moniker, Christopher Mountbatten Chichester. Both the Mountbatten and the Chichester were significant. They were signs of Christian's growing ego. The name Chichester belongs to a family of Anglo-Irish barons, while the Mountbattens are a centuries-old dynasty of German and English nobility, including the current British royal family. This new identity exploited people's ambition instead of their sympathy. By claiming to be nobility, Christian piqued the imaginations of wealthy Americans who coveted a lofty status for themselves. He was evoking a world few had seen, but everyone longed to be part of. In The Ponzi Scheme Puzzle, A History and Analysis of Con Artists and Victims, author Tamar Frankel writes about the value con artists place on building a reputation. Frankel states, living in the right neighborhood makes a huge difference. It opens many doors. Networking and getting to know wealthy people and managers of their wealth is important to con artists. Just as he had done in Connecticut, Christian started networking while he stayed with the Kellens. He sought out a small, wealthy enclave of older residents as his base of operations, a place where people would likely be impressed by the Mountbatten name. The town he chose was San Marino, California. San Marino is an extremely affluent suburb of Los Angeles. Today, the average price of a single-family home in the area is $2.6 million. And like Berlin, Connecticut, it has a disproportionately large number of retirees. This suggests that, in addition to seeking out wealth, Christian was also looking for easy marks. With no job to speak of, Christian couldn't possibly afford to pay his own rent in San Marino. Instead, he'd have to con his way into cheap housing like he had in Connecticut. Christian joined a wealthy church, sat in on city council meetings, and weaseled into social clubs. He even performed in a community play. Throughout all this seemingly civic-minded activity, Christian introduced himself to his new neighbors as a poor relative of the Mountbattens. At first, he claimed to be a student planning to attend the University of Southern California to study filmmaking. But then, he thought better of it. Instead, he began telling anyone he met that he already was a filmmaker. To be precise, 
he was the producer of a popular British spy show called The Prisoner. This claim was totally ludicrous. The Prisoner had aired in 1967, when Christian was only six years old. Yet it was a stroke of true confidence art. Christian realized that the quickest way to become someone was to convince people that he already was someone. He selected a real show, one he had watched on TV as a child, so that he could speak about it in depth. But he was also smart enough to choose a television program that his American listeners had almost certainly not seen. That way, no one would ask too many questions. And no one did. On the contrary, San Marino residents fell for his story so completely that they offered him a job producing their local morning show, Inside San Marino. The program was a far cry from the big-time entertainment Christian aspired to, but for a kid with zero work experience, it was a pretty good start. Unfortunately for Christian, and even more so for his future victims, these happy times wouldn't last. About two years after arriving in San Marino, Christian fell under suspicion, apparently for the first time, and he went to devastating lengths to make sure it was the last time. When Christian first moved to San Marino, no one knew exactly where the young man was living. He often told people he was house-sitting, but never let on precisely where or for whom. It seems that Christian was perhaps biding his time, making himself available for any opportunity that might present itself. Then, in the fall of 1982, 21-year-old Christian found the opening he'd been waiting for. A member of the church he attended told him about a local woman named Dee Dee Sows, who had a guest house in the backyard of her estate. Dee Dee was in her late 60s and a lifelong resident of San Marino. She was one of the richest of the rich and an infamous alcoholic. Ever since her son, John Sos, had left home a few years before, Dee Dee had been going downhill. For Christian, this only made her an easier target. The details of what happened on D.D. So's estate between 1983 and 1985 are murky at best. However, we do know that Christian moved onto her property just a month or two after their introduction. Here's an interview with a neighbor. He lived in a guest house uh, across the street with uh, people we had known earlier in Aldadena. And John Soas was the son of uh, the person that owned the house. Dee Dee's guest house was an ideal living situation for Christian, a place where he could take advantage of her wealth and status without actually having to share space with her. However, a few months after Christian moved in, Dee Dee's son, John, returned home. And according to neighbors, he was less than pleased to find a stranger living in his mother's backyard. John had recently gotten married and had moved back to San Marino with his wife, Linda, in hopes of saving up money for their own place. He most likely intended on staying in the guest house. But Christian, that is, Christopher Mountbatten Chichester, had gotten there first. 
Christian continued to live in the bungalow while John and Linda shared the main house with Dee Dee for the next two years. For John and Linda, this was an understandably stressful arrangement. Forced to share space with their alcoholic mother, the couple grew bitter toward the strange man residing in the guesthouse. And Christian's seemingly stellar reputation simply added insult to injury. He'd established himself as a mildly successful and well-liked member of the San Marino community. John, however, was still working a low-paying job and living at his mother's house. It didn't take long before he started looking into Christian's past. But before he could dig up any dirt on the young conman, something strange happened. In January of 1985, John and Linda came home to Dee Dee and delivered some startling news. They had both been offered top-secret jobs with the government. Up to now, John's and Linda's day jobs had been entry-level at best. John was a programmer and Linda a clerk at a sci-fi bookshop. But now, out of the blue, they were on a secret mission. They told Dee Dee they couldn't reveal any details except that their assignment was temporary and required them to travel to New York immediately. They assured her that they would be back in two weeks and promised to board Linda's six cats until they returned, instead of leaving them in the house with Dee Dee. If Dee Dee had any doubts about the authenticity of this job offer, she doesn't seem to have expressed them. She said goodbye to her son and daughter-in-law around February 8, 1985, and simply went on with her life. Two weeks went by, then several more. John and Linda still hadn't returned. Finally, after eight weeks, the kennel called Linda's sister, Kathy, saying Linda had never come back to pick up her cats. Disturbed, Linda's sister called Dee Dee Sows, hoping she would know where Linda was. Dee Dee replied only by saying that Linda and John were on a top-secret assignment with the government, and she couldn't discuss the details any further. Growing more and more concerned, Kathy called Dee Dee repeatedly in the coming weeks, but she never managed to get any more information. Finally, in late April of 1985, almost three months after her disappearance, Linda's family officially reported her missing to the police. Officers questioned Dee Dee Sows, who once again said that John and Linda were on a secret mission. This time, however, she added that she knew John and Linda were safe because a source had kept her informed. Who was this source? Police pressed her for details, but Dee Dee refused to give them any more information. And without evidence of foul play, the officers were forced to shelve the investigation. Three months later, however, Dee Dee changed her tune. In July 1985, she filed a missing persons report for both John and Linda. When questioned about why she had waited so long, Dee Dee explained that the source who had been giving her updates for the last six months had suddenly vanished. Once again, 
police asked for this person's identity, and this time, Dee Dee answered. It was Christopher Mountbatten Chichester. It would be almost ten years before the remains of John Soves were found, and it would be thirteen more before investigators tracked down the elusive man they believed murdered John and possibly Linda, though her remains were never recovered. In the meantime, that man was on his way back to the East Coast. And as the scene of the murder faded in his rearview mirror, Christian Gerhardt's writer was no doubt already planning his next and greatest con, convincing the wealthiest, most powerful people in America that he was actually one of them, a long-lost Rockefeller. Thanks for listening to Con Artists. We'll be back next week with part two of Christian Gerhardt's writer. We'll learn how he won the heart of a Manhattan millionaire who became suspicious after his arrogance led to blatant abuse. Finally, we'll see how Christian's controlling nature became his undoing when he kidnapped his own daughter an abduction that set off a nationwide manhunt, ultimately leading to Christian's exposure as John So's killer. For more information on Christian Gerhardt's writer, amongst the many sources we used, we found Mark Seal's book, The Man in the Rockefeller Suit, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Con Artists and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals, like Con Artists, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Con Artists on Spotify, just open the app and type Con Artists in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. I'll see you next time. Con Artist was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Russell Nash, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. This episode of Con Artist was written by Megan Dane. I'm Alastair Murden. <laughs> <laughs>